My story starts a bit like a weather chart, full of highs and lows. Mad, misfit, mercenary or missionary. She said to me, you are lucky. Our friends held us up as the perfect odd couple. I knew this guy was the devil. I had goosebumps running all down my body. And that was the point. That was the moment. Hello from our hot and steamy tropical town. You're listening to the fifth season of the Spun Stories podcast. My name's Jess Ong. We're a live storytelling night based in Darwin, which is the capital city of Australia's Northern Territory. And you might know of Darwin thanks to the NT News, or maybe you associate us with crocodiles, cyclones and the beer can regatta. We love living in Darwin because of unique joys like those, but we also love the shuddering electrical storms, the vast skies and the magnetising colour-drenched sunsets, the fishing, the very slow pace, the murmuring of different languages, and of course, the slurping of luxars at the many markets around the place. But you only have to kick up a little bit of dust to come across the true highlight of this town, and that's the surprising, enchanting, self-deprecating, relaxed characters who call this place home, each of who weaves small but solid threads in and out of our community's tapestry. Darwin has that way of flinging a fish hook, yeah, a fish hook, right into your heart. It's one of those places that you leave, but you find yourself unexpectedly wandering back. Or maybe you arrive and realise this place is nothing like you've ever really breathed in before. The Larrakia are the traditional custodians of the Darwin region, and we've entered Garawa Galiji, which is the big wind time on the calendar of the Larrakia. This means the floodplains are drying and the wind seems to come from every direction. It's time to hunt magpie goose, and the long-necked turtles spend time underground waiting for the rains. The dry season is fast becoming a distant memory for all of us, and yep, those strategies to survive the build-up have commenced. So with that, let's jump into the first story for the fifth season of our podcast. After sharing his story at our Spun event, Gus Fitzgerald received the very first standing ovation from our audience. And when you listen, you're going to know why. But before you do, I want to paint a bit of a picture of Gus. He's a young, handsome, indigenous man with deep eyes. He's got tattoos, both his ears are pierced, and his fingers are home to a multitude of rings. So yeah, I guess with all of that in mind, Gus looks pretty hip. And at first glance, he doesn't quite fit the bill of someone who you'd expect to share the type of story he did. So take a listen. I'm going to break you. (laughs) Through very narrowed eyes, my dad used to say that to me before we played table tennis. (laughs) So I'll serve. My dad was many things to many different people one of which was a lifesaver, surf lifesaver. And at 10 years of age, he actually made me save myself. 
We were on the central coast of New South Wales in Hawks Nest and it was very rough and dangerous wild surf. And I was about 50 metres out as a 10-year-old kid and I got swept about six or 700 metres down the beach. And my dad just calmly followed walking down the beach, watching. And every time I looked back, he was there. And then I worked out, he's not going to save me. I've got to do this. And so I worked out somehow, managed to catch a couple of waves. And I washed in on the beach and I remember sort of arriving at his feet and looking up at him and just going, and he just said, all right, that was pretty hairy. Um, I think we've had enough for the day, we can leave. No worries. Tony Fitzgerald was a social justice activist. He was a human rights uh, champion. He was a lawyer, an environmentalist, an athlete. He was a teacher. He was my dad. He was a brave and courageous man under fire. He was a very gentle and sensitive man. But at the same time, he was a very hard and unrelentingly masochistic human being. <laughs> he would go into battle for anyone, literally. In the street, he would confront police that were harassing Aboriginal people and profess, that's my client, what are you doing to them? Even though it was not their client. Uh, one time, when I was a kid, about 12 or 13, he threatened my best friend Anthony with, and I with cross-examination. He found out we were sort of doing something on the edge of the law. And he said in front of Anthony's parents, one of whom was a lawyer, I will cross-examine you. I will extract the information from you. I have that power. Do you want this to happen? And, and Anthony's mum sort of looked at him and said, Jesus, Fitzy, that's pretty extreme. They're 12. And we straight away went, yeah, 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 we were lighting fires in prep school. Sorry. No worries. He's a gladiator, mentally and physically. He was a, uh, he feared no opponent at all. Like, yeah, he just didn't. If you think you're an alpha male, forget it. You don't have the resolve. Like, um, I think people were genuinely scared of him, some people. They saw someone be so genuinely hard on themselves, they thought, fuck, how hard is it gonna be on me? But we were, a, we were a formidable duo, you know. We were like Angelo Dundee and Muhammad Ali, except dad was champion and coach and I was apprentice. When I was six years old, uh, my dad got thyroid cancer and we went to Royal North Shore Hospital and we had surgery. And I didn't really understand what was happening, but I knew he was weakened when I first saw him. He had he was walking around with these two bags, IV drips and tubes coming out of him. And I could just tell there was something wrong. And after that, he went into this very, very supremely extreme form of rehab, which was one of the things was to swim in Lake Alexander three laps. And so he'd had his neck chopped. And he said, oh, they've cut into me, Gus. And he had his neck chopped. He had this big scar and all this muscle wastage. And he started swimming in these big arcs in Lake Alexander because he had one side weaker than the other. And he remember him saying to me, no matter how much it hurts, 
I never stop, never, until I finish the three laps. Pain is just weakness leaving my body. He was a militant man. He then detoxed our whole family. <laughs> we weren't allowed to have processed foods. We had red vegetable juice in the morning, green vegetable juice at night, from six years old. And so the sort of the sexing up of the health food industry just doesn't really cut it after that, you know? Like, um, he meditated daily, morning and night. His pursuit of calm was another exercise of militancy. Work that out. He was a fully armoured knight. He'd built himself back to that so that he could go back into battle with himself. I loved and revered him, but I was afraid of him. I did what I thought he wanted me to do out of fear of disappointment. He played rugby. He loved rugby more than oxygen. I played rugby. I was terrified of rugby. <laughs> Tackling, committing to stopping someone who was like a freight train, breathing steam. And you've got to stop that. It's a scary thing. But as he would say, it's electric when you do it. But I was never as afraid as I was of that, as I was of not making him happy. As a boy, I could sense there was some sort of sadness, a loneliness, I think, about being a single dad, being sick, my mum not loving him anymore. I tried to protect him from that. I thought if I could just make this man happy, somehow, somehow he'll live forever. In 2006, we went to Vietnam, and his cancer had come back really strongly. Um, we were in Halong Bay on these houseboats, and we dived off the boat into this green water. And I popped up next to Dad, and he popped up, and I just saw this look of terror on his face. And he said, Gus, fuck, Gus, you really got to help me. I was sort of like, yeah, okay, Dad, you can swim. And he said, no, seriously, seriously, I'm going under. You, I, I'm too weak. You got to help me. And so I swam to him, and then suddenly I had to employ all the skills that he taught me to save myself, to use against him. And I swam him to the anchor line of the boat and held him there. And he was holding the anchor, and he was just infuriated by this, like infuriated about his weakness. And he said, how's the irony of that? A lifesaver, and I can't even fucking swim. A few years later, it was 2009, and February 20 to be exact, and the Chiefs were playing our beloved Waratahs in the Super Rugby. And Dad and I sat, it was pandemonium at our house, there were people everywhere, and it was a sticky February day, and Dad and I sat on the couch, and I was sitting next to a skeleton of a man. And we watched the last game of rugby we would ever watch together. But for 80 minutes, we were just cocooned in this impenetrable little fortress in silence. No one came near us. Nothing came in. We didn't even talk. We just looked at each other every now and then. And it was like he was just passing me little messages. 
just shedding his armour slowly. But he didn't. He hung on to it. And then after the game, I had to help him. I had to help him get up. And I then started sort of, you know, helping him walk a bit. And he said, you've got to carry me. And I sort of, again, I was a bit shocked. I was like, yeah, right, like you can walk. And he says, you've got to fucking carry me. I can't walk. I've got no strength. Have a look at me. And I had to carry him. I lifted him up and carried him to his bed. And he never left his bed after that. And then after he died, a few days later, I remember saying to a very good friend of mine, I'm not scared of anything anymore. And I think that was the 19 and bulletproof boy's ideal about the world and being destructive and thinking I can throw myself in front of anything just to prove my strength. But I couldn't. And I came to realise that what had actually happened is now I'd had nothing to live for. I couldn't pull off the impossible. I couldn't make this man happy. He didn't live. He was now dead and I failed. And I was scared that I would never meet his unattainable standards, his unattainable standards. I just thought I would never make it. And just like him, I was terrified. I was in fear of myself more than anything. And suddenly I was that boy again, floating out to sea, getting dragged down the beach. And every time I looked back at, this, at the beach, it was empty. There was no lifesaver there anymore. And so I gave up, fully gave up. And the fear engulfed me. And I started drowning in a very toxic sea of drugs and alcohol for a very long time. I attempted suicide twice. And how the fuck do you stay afloat with circumstances like that? I miss my dad. I miss his kindness and his knowledge and his wisdom. I miss my mate. And I miss him because he taught me to swim. <laughs> he taught me to swim through wild surf and very turbulent times in my life. And I can't thank him enough every time I get in the water. But the main thing I've learned about all of this is sometimes it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to let go. It's okay to give up control. You know, we attach this stigma in our, st stigma in our society of weakness to vulnerability. But I think really, if you're vulnerable, it can be one of your greatest strengths. And just like that 10-year-old boy in the ocean, you can't fight the power of the surf. You can't hold back the waves. But you've got to turn and face them. And if you swim with them, eventually you'll make it back to shore. And that's the only way to truly free yourself of your fears.
Listening to Gus's story is a really nice reminder of the importance of being vulnerable. It's not always an easy thing to do or uncover, but the power that can come with letting bravado fall away is immense. Gus shared his story at our event at this year's Garmalung Festival, which is an Indigenous festival here in Darwin. Sam Carmody produced Gus's story, with sound editing by Rosa Ellen and sound production by Gaya Osborne. Music came from Lajlo Hassani, and we generously received funding support from Darwin International Airport. At Spun, we acknowledge and are grateful to our first storytellers, the Larrakia people. They're the traditional custodians of the lands on which we gather to connect through story. My name's Jess Ong. Thanks for listening.